It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A -a one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. inside cricket looking back at the, the big two test matches that have been going on over the weekend actually in the series as well and how it reflects on the world test championship so far of course i'm talking about new zealand england and australia pakistan new zealand england i suppose actually a pretty frustrating end in a way from a distance it looked like quite a turgid game with a turgid end it was yeah it was not a great game of cricket really the pitch was very flat Both pitches have been pretty flat, actually the Bay Oval as well, and only England's ineptitude really cost them the series in the Bay Oval. It was a strange old day today. I mean, we sensed the weather was closing in, but England actually, they dropped Kane Williamson twice, and one of them, the catch by Joe Denley at mid-wicket, you've really got to see it. Um, I could tell you all about it, but you've really got to see it for yourself to gauge the full horror of it. Jofra Archer, who's really struggled to make an impact with the ball in this series, but lots of overs, he's been tidy, but he, he hasn't been able to make the breakthroughs England were hoping for. Bold one to Williamson, clipped away, straight to mid-wicket. It was like underarming a lob to Denley at mid-wicket. Archer was celebrating, and amazingly, Denley dropped the catch, and you just sense all the life just was sucked out of England after that, and Williamson and Taylor batted really well, and then the rain came, and England were totally blunted. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, those sort of catches? And I remember Mike Gatting dropping one once as well, and he was one of the best catchers of a, of a ball or, of course, a bread roll uh, in history, and he dropped an absolute dolly like that. And there was, a weird, uh, there was a weird incident in the Adelaide Test match, the Australia-Pakistan Test match, where a batsman against Nathan Lyon tried to pull a ball, and it, it sort of ricocheted slightly, I think, off his glove and went over the batsman's head, and it just lobbed over Tim Payne's head, the wicketkeeper. But he didn't, he, was, he didn't know where the ball was, and it almost landed on his helmet. It almost landed on his head. The first slip and the leg slip couldn't get there in time, and the, the, the wicketkeeper was sort of disorientated. And so the ball actually dropped literally behind him and sort of rolled between his legs. So, I, I mean, obviously the Denley drop was... 
slightly different, but we're all human. Indeed. It, it, in a way, it was almost too easy, and, and that was the whole point of it. Archer was celebrating already. He didn't notice the catch being dropped. It was, it was such a bizarre thing. It was one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen on a, a cricket field. Of course, we got YouTube up and we looked at some of the amazing drop catches that have been have happened at this level of the game. I think you mentioned the Mike Gatting one in Madras, uh, Chennai, as it is now, back in 1993. That was extraordinary at Silly Point. Uh, the, he dropped the undroppable, really. There was also the Alan Border one in 1985 at Lords, where he was throwing it up and he dropped it as he was throwing it up. I remember uh, Steve Harmison also dropping a goober of a court and bold as well in the West Indies, a sort of a leading edge, and it was just a, a little lollop to his right and a total dolly, and, uh, and he missed that. You know the origin of the word dolly? I think I've, I've told you this before, actually. It's actually an Indian word, which I think it's spelt D-O-L-I, and it means uh, a present, a gift of sweets or something, actually. And all these, all these catches obviously are gifts, but not always accepted. Well, that one wasn't by Denley today. Of course, the other one, was, the, the other famous one, was, was Jenny Gunn's drop catch in, in the World Cup final when God, yeah. India were you know, pressing for victory, England pressing for victory as well. It was nine down. It was the catch to win the World Cup, and she was at mid-off, and she dropped it, and, and Charlotte Edwards on commentary. You, you said, oh, God, there. Well, that's exactly what Charlotte Edwards said. There was a, a gap where everyone was thinking, what on earth has just happened there? And Charlotte Edwards said, oh, my God. And that sort of summed it up. You know, what on earth has just happened? And fortunately for Jenny Gunn, the Indian tail was cleaned up soon afterwards, so she didn't have to live with the nightmare of having dropped a catch and basically dropped the World Cup. There was Herschel Gibbs, of course, at Headingley in, in 1999. Steve Waugh, I'm not sure he did say, you just dropped the World Cup, mate, but it, it makes a good story. Uh, that wasn't as straightforward as the one that Joe Denley uh, dropped today. But also as well, it's, it's also worth bearing in mind that although Denley did drop that catch today, Ollie Pope dropped in a way a more significant one behind the stumps because his drop off Williamson happened about 15, 20 minutes into the day's play. And it really should have been taken, I suppose, it, you know, it leads to question marks about whether Pope should have been keeping for England in this test match. I mean, he said himself that he's kept from the age of eight. He is a, a has been a regular wicketkeeper, but I suppose not. At, well, clearly not at this level, but also not as much at first class level as well, because uh, Ben Folkes does the job at Surrey. But it really was a catch that should have been taken, and of course the weather had the final say. But if England were to press for victory today, and we, we didn't have weather involved, I mean, in a way that was more significant because it would have got rid of Williamson early. He was in his 30s when that happened, and the other one, the Denley drop, happened at, at 62. But it, the weather was the winner, the pitch was the winner, the Kookaburra ball was the winner in this series. I mean, it was an interesting series, but actually, I think the pitches were too flat, and England were blunted by it. I, I, the thing is, if New Zealand win the series, they say, well, fine, we won the series 1-0, but I just wonder whether it's that good a spectacle for the spectators. I suppose you'd have to ask the people there, watch the two test matches, a lot of people turned up, especially at the, the Bay Oval, but it was it was quite a grind. Both matches were quite a grind. Cookerbro ball, flat pitches in New Zealand, didn't make for compelling test match cricket. I think it's, uh, I think you've underestimated it. I think it's an insomnia cure, and the kookaburra ball in particular they can't you can't have both you can't have a flat pitch and a kookaburra ball it's just a recipe for turning people away from the game actually but new zealand uh, so say, new they've zealand got to do something say, about the kookaburra ball i think 
New Zealand would say though, Yoz, well, we won the first test. We won the first test by an innings. And there was enough there on the final day to exploit. Uh, Wagner got one that took off against Denley the night before. Santner troubling the left-handers in the rough. Um, you know, they, they know how to play the long game, I suppose. But... I think one of the things one of the things about watching it on flat pitch and Kokobra ball is the game is is it's quite monochrome. It it doesn't have those uh, dramatic spurts of action that sometimes you get, say in South Africa or in England, where a batsman suddenly comes out and plays lots of shots, or you get four wickets in an hour because the ball's yeah, doing but something. But that's brought about by the by the Duke ball and a bit more help in the pitch, which gives bowlers a bit more opportunity and op- optimism. Therefore, batsmen have got to be a bit more positive because there might be a good ball round the corner. So it encourages generally more positive cricket. If you have these flat pitches and these boring balls, then batsmen can just sit in and play a, a dull innings. I mean, having said that, uh, d- someone like David Warner, I mean, David Warner's incredible innings in Adelaide, 335 not out, which I watched every ball of, it, it wasn't boring, actually, at all, uh, because he was positive. And the bowling, the Pakistan bowling, was, was OK. It, it was decent in patches, but there was nothing in the pitch. But the great thing was Warner didn't just, you know, grind it out. He played enterprising shots. He also ran like a hare between the wickets. He covered 22 kilometres in that innings. 22 kilometres with your pads on. That's half a marathon which is pretty impressive, and he still had the energy to jump in the air three times for his various landmarks. Of course, that innings is the second highest innings now made by an Australian batsman. The, uh, he, he overtook Donald Bradman's 299 at Adelaide to become the only person to ever make a triple 100 at the Adelaide Oval. And it was, it was an odd moment, actually, when he went past the 334 that Bradman made, which was Australia's second highest score, and for a long time their highest score, until Matthew Hayden overtook it. So Bradman for a long time, 334. And then Mark Taylor, 334, he then declared on 334 not out. I think we've, we've covered this story before, but it was, it was actually a, 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 an amazing moment for, for David Warner. But the, the key thing, I'm, the, the point I'm making here is he did play in a very enterprising manner, so it wasn't boring. What about the, the, the England overall report card? Give me a report card on the likes of. So Rory Burns, probably 8 out of 10? Yeah, well, he, he, he got 100. I mean, he was dropped twice before he got going, really, in England's first innings. And the catches should have been taken, I suppose. So, you know, he, he benefited from that. He got a 50 in the first test, looked a bit scratchy, could have been out three times uh, and was eventually caught behind. But I think Burns makes the most of what he's got. And, and, and it's as simple as that. And perhaps that's the lesson for some of the other batsmen, for someone like Dominic Sibley, someone like Joe Denley, who has now played, what is it, nine, ten test matches and is yet to register 100. Burns has got two, one home, one away, against decent opposition, against a New Zealand attack and against an Australian attack. So, yeah, Burns, positive, really, 50 and 100 in the two test matches out here. His international career continues uh, to develop promisingly because simply because he does make the most of what he's got he's not the most elegant player to watch and there are lots of moving parts but you can't argue with the runs that he scored this year Joe Denley you say there hasn't made 100 now 10 tests that's interesting because I did a stat a few years ago looking at the the top run scorers in test cricket and all of them apart from Steve Waugh made a hundred in their first ten tests, and many of them made a hundred in their first two or three tests. 
So there, there was a sort of uh, a benchmark, a measure of someone who's going to go on and make a lot of runs in Test cricket, and I'm talking, you know, the the seven, eight, nine thousand sort of level. All of them had made a Test hundred within seven or eight Tests. Uh, I, I guess the thing about Denley is, firstly, he hasn't made a hundred in those first ten, and also age is against him as well. But he does show a slightly uh, improving curve. Well, he he played well in the first Test match, and he and he didn't do very well in the second Test match. Uh, so his challenge in South Africa is is a clear one: is to really stamp his authority and and make that number three position his for the next couple of years. I mean, that that's the challenge for him, isn't it? Uh, sooner or later, he's got to get the really big score that a number three batsman has to make in test cricket to be convincing to and probably in the future hold your place ultimately I mean that, that surely that's the bottom line and that's where uh, Australia are looking very good because of Marnus Labuschagne who's made consecutive hundreds in the Pakistan series on the back of his six five or six fifties in the ashes and uh, he's already now the leading run scorer in test cricket this year uh, and and he just gives Australia that kind of robustness at number three, not only uh, an ability to score runs and, and play all types of bowling, but to stay in and score really big scores. So his 200s have been big hundreds already, sort of, you know, not granddaddy hundreds, but certainly daddy hundreds. Uh, what, what about uh, Dominic Sibley? So he made a, a 20-odd in the first test, but looked a little bit ordinary here, would you say? I mean, has he... Does he look as if he's got the, the makings of it, or is it too early to say? I think it's too early to say, isn't it? He's only played three Test match innings. It's about coming to terms with the Test match environment. He, he probably does have a, a technical issue with you know this feet pointing towards extra cover, slightly open stance, scores a lot of runs on the leg side. That shouldn't uh, mitigate him necessarily having a, a successful Test match career. I mean, look at someone like uh, Steve Smith, who scores you know enormous a number of runs on the leg side. So, yeah, I mean, again, South Africa is going to be the test for him. And then if he gets it, Sri Lanka, and there's talk about them recalling uh, Keaton Jennings for the Sri Lanka series because he's been so successful in, in Asian conditions so far. So, uh, Sibley... Presumably, will be picked for South Africa. I mean, the, the squad is yet to be announced, and then th- there's the challenge for him again. It's, it's a bit like Denley, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, as a batsman, you, li- you live or die by the number of runs you score. But you, you can't just give a player three Test innings. You, you know, you, you've backed him. He's got a lot of runs in, in Championship cricket. You've, you've backed him. If he's vulnerable in South Africa, then what do you do then? And then perhaps you, you do have to uh, think again. But he's part, in a way, his his method of playing, I suppose, that. Uh, willingness to get stuck in and bat for a long time is part of England's new mantra. It's something that Joe Root actually just showed the perfect example of in this Test match. If, you know, if there has been a, a triumph for anybody in this game from England, it was Joe Root, uh, superb hundred in the sense that he he, he it was his slowest to a hundred ever, and his technique was excellent, and he never looked in trouble, and he just batted time. He took each ball on its merit and he just looked at the class player that, that we know he is. And that was really important for him as well. Uh, you know, just, just, I, mean, I don't think for a moment that England were thinking about replacing him as captain. I mean, there's a lot of talk about his captaincy and his, it affects his batting. I just don't think that is on their minds at the moment. But it's important for Root just to sort of put that behind him really and just sort of get rid of that sort of talk. Because his, his main function in the side 
is to score runs. If he's scoring runs, especially the size of innings he produced in Hamilton, then England will clearly improve their record both home and away. Just one or two other players to pick on. Uh, Ollie Pope played an enterprising innings. He looks like he's, he's got the makings of a test player. I, I think so, yeah. I mean, he, he's earmarked, isn't he, as a, as a, as a future long-term England player. Not a number six. I think eventually they'll hope to, to push him up the order. But he looked organised, got a, a good technique. And actually, you talk about his sort of positivity. In, in this match, he actually held himself in check. He reined himself in. He, he batted in a very disciplined fashion uh, with Joe Root. I think it probably helped that Root was at the other end. I mean, he thinks a, a lot of him. He looks up to, to Root as a player. Think of the age gap between them around about seven years. And he did look a test match player, albeit on a, on a very flat pitch. And in the end, he, he actually got out in a very unselfish manner. He could have eyed 100. He was on 75. England were looking for quick runs and he perished going for quick runs. But, you know, a, a big plus. He's got his first test match half century. And there looks to be a, a really promising test match player in there. You never quite know how it's going to work out. And you, know, you never know. You know, you might find he's one of those players that has some success and then has a bit of failure and dropped and comes back an even stronger player. It's happened to a lot of players over the years. But, yeah, definite tick for, for Ollie Pope. Promising, looks organised. Bowlers-wise, they were the people who really struggled, I suppose, forgivably, given the conditions. But uh, it was almost as if Joe Root flogged Joffrey Archer to death. I mean... Maybe he needs to be uh, short, sharp spells rather than 40 overs in a day or 40 overs in an innings. Yeah, well, you end up bowling 40 overs in an innings, I suppose, if you're out in the field for 201 overs. England totally blunted at the the Bay Oval. It was a frustrating series for Archer. There's no doubt about that. I don't think he enjoys the Kookaburra ball. Who does? Uh, I don't even think the New Zealand bowlers enjoy the Kookaburra ball at all. I think they prefer to play uh, with a Dukes ball as well. So frustrating for Archie. He had the catch dropped in this match, in, in the second innings by Denley. He also had Latham dropped by Stokes at, at second slip. He took two wickets in the series, not what England were hoping for. But I think with the Kookaburra ball in South Africa, Stuart Broad has made this point, the Kookaburra ball in South Africa, where the pitches are a bit bouncier, a bit quicker, then, especially in those first 20-25 overs, he may have more of an impact. But he, he knows what it's like now to bowl with that Kookaburra ball overseas on flat pitches. And there's the challenge for him. Can he make it work for himself in the future? Uh, frustrating for him, but England... you know. England, I think one of the things about Archer is we, we expect so much of him. He's burst onto the scene and he's only 24. He's only played half a dozen test matches. Uh, cut him some slack, basically. There was a lot of uh, talk about, well, has been a lot of talk about the, the role of uh, Sam Curran and you know, where he fits into the team. He got a couple of early wickets. He opened the bowling with the new ball ahead of Archer a couple of times. So do you think... They're sort of verging towards him being a, ver- a more or less a permanent member of the team. Yeah, I think I, I sense that Root really likes him. Uh, he wants him in the team. And when England have done well recently, Curran has been in the side. He's had a, he's had a lot of success, and his his record with with bat and ball ball is is, is good so far. Again, he was another who was 
blunted by the pitches out here. The ball didn't swing very much. It does give England a, a different angle. He is prepared to uh, experiment. He, I mean, he got Nichols out with a short ball in this match. You wouldn't associate Sam Curran getting a player out with a short ball, but he dropped one in short. Nichols pulled it down towards fine leg. Very talented cricketer. Uh, he shaped well with the bat as well. Just hints of it in the series. Last innings in at the Bay Oval, the second innings batted really well. And it was positive as well. England were looking to save the game, but he also played uh, two or three tremendous strokes. Yeah, exciting young cricketer. Uh, where's he going to be in in four or five years' time? I think that's the one of the most exciting things. He could, you know, he could be a, a tremendous player uh, for England. I think I think they they like him and they want him in that side. The one thing I'd say uh, about Sam Curran, uh, and this is having watched the two tests, Australia Pakistan is I don't see he'll be taking wickets in Australia. And that's something England really have to think about very seriously because you look at the Pakistan attack, uh, you know, decent fast bowlers, actually. Shaheen Shafridi, tall left arm, 19-year-old, was easily the best. And, and the key word is tall. He got the ball to bounce as well as go through at a decent lick and cause problems. He didn't take a lot of wickets. I mean, they didn't even get down to number seven, Tim Payne, didn't get a bat in the series. So Australia knocked up 580 in one game and 589 in the other, losing three and four wickets. So not many wickets were taken by those Pakistanis. Shine Shadafridi got most of them. And it just showed the blueprint for playing in Australia is not short, medium paces. So they had Mohamed Abbas, who couldn't uh, even get the ball past the bat at all, and yet he's taken lots of wickets in other conditions. And then a third seamer that was usually a 16-year-old or a 19-year-old, and who they, they both had pace, Mohamed Musa and Nazim Shikshar, both had you know decent lick, but they had low, no experience and actually no height either. And if you look at those Australian fast bowlers who are so successful in Australia, Josh Hazelwood, six foot six, Pat Cummins about six foot two, Mitchell Stark about six foot five, all of them bowling around the eighty-eight to ninety mile an hour mark, all of them ramming the ball in just short of a length or aiming at the stumps, the top of off stump, with the odd bouncer, and just continually hostile bowling, plus a spinner, Nathan Lyon, who gets bounce. And that's the key to taking wickets in Australia, getting bounce, making it uncomfortable for batsmen. I don't see Sam Curran being able to do that in Australia. So maybe that's something for him to think about. He could be uh, uh, effective in India next winter, and, and also obviously at home, but I'm not sure he's the answer for, for Australian conditions. And that has to be England's target, because if you look now at the World Test Championship after these first few series, India, you know, streaking away miles ahead, partly because they played most of their games at home and they've got, you know, a ridiculous number of points. Bringing up the rear in terms of second and third spot are actually Australia and New Zealand. So... You know, those are the three teams, in a way, that are probably the best at the moment in world cricket. New Zealand and Australia have only played a couple of series, to, so it's, it's a bit of a sort of lopsided table at the moment. But England have to find a way of, of getting an attack, firstly, to take wickets in Australian and Indian conditions, because those are their two major overseas opponents after South Africa this winter. And then secondly, get that opening pair sorted because Australia 
with Warner now back to his form, uh, Joe Burns, who looks solid as well, and, and obviously Indian batting we all know about. So England have just got to find that robustness in their top four and their penetration in their, in their bowling in flat conditions with the Kookaburra ball. Yeah, they have to. You're right. And I, I think they, they need someone else to help Archer. When you're thinking about Australia in a, in a couple of years' time, they, they'll need someone else with pace to help Archer. can't all just be Joffre Archer, Joffre Archer when England go to Australia. Or can he win us a test match? He's going to need some some serious support. I mean, they're, they're trying to do that. They're trying to encourage uh, the younger fast bowlers. Uh, Mahmood was out here, for example, didn't play. Uh, is he is he going to be quick enough? Well, wait and see on that. But I think the bottom line is again that you know England will struggle overseas. I think it's going to be incredibly difficult for England in Australia in a couple of years' time. That's their their plan. They're planning towards that 25 test matches or 24 test matches, whatever it is now between now and then. But it's going to be very very difficult for them to win in Australia. And before that, of course, they've got India, and it's going to be incredibly difficult for them to do well in India. I actually think they they might find it harder in India than they do in Australia. And I think they're going to find it pretty difficult in Australia from this distance out. Anyway, I can't. I can't see England winning back the Ashes in, in a couple of years' time. I really can't, I just, because I don't think at the moment they don't look to have the the, the parts to, to build the machine that can take this Australian side down. Of course, the other thing is that in a couple of years' time, you know, Australia might have some injuries in their bowling attack. You never know. You never know who's going to be fit, for example. But the, as it stands at the moment, it's going to be incredibly difficult, and it's going to be very difficult for England in India uh, uh, next winter because India have got so many bases covered: batting, spin bowling, and pace bowling. And England, England don't. Uh, England, I think. Will continue to do reasonably well at home, but overseas in the big series, they are going to struggle. I think that's the bottom line. I think it's, it's, it's going to be a while before they are able to re-establish themselves right at the top of the uh, Test match pecking order. I think that's just the harsh reality of it. Okay, well, I've got some harsh reality for you, and that is that you're <laughs> on your way home now, and uh, I'm afraid you're not going to be able to wear the shorts anymore because it's about minus one and it's going to get colder. So you might just need to get, get a, find a pair of trousers. Are you ready for that? Yeah, I've got myself mentally prepared. I know it's going to be tough, but I have been in an English winter before, you know, yours. I know what it's like, but yeah, yeah my mindset's all right. I'm, I'm like a batsman waiting to go out and face a fast bowler. I'm just mentally preparing in the dressing room. I'm actually at Auckland Airport, so it's not going to be long now before I feel the icy blast of winter. Actually, you might feel the icy blast of the air conditioning on the plane before you even get home. Uh, but, yeah, well, I can help you with some counselling when you get back, uh, when you do have to pull those trousers on for the first time. Now, we'll look ahead to next week to the South Africa tour. Of course, South Africa is, is going to be an interesting one because the South African cricket is in a complete mess at the moment. We'll look in, into that in a bit more detail next week. And also, I'm going to review the best cricket books of the year with one or two of the authors. So look out for that. Have a good trip home, Simon. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Podcast Network. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.